This is an ABC podcast. Along a suburban shopping strip, a sale is about to go down. For a high-value, in-demand item, they've set a time and a price. And now, the interested buyer is on the phone. Just around the corner, he says. Be there in a minute. But this was to be no ordinary gum tree sale. Because the seller, he's being observed. From a nearby parking spot, plainclothes police have staked out the area and locked the target in their sights. This is a sting. Oh, hang on, this is about a push bike. I'm Elizabeth Coolass. Welcome to Days Like These. Today, the theft of a beloved bike, the motley crew who'll stop at nothing to get it back, and the puppet master behind the whole thing, who's made it his personal mission to fight bike crime. I have a friend. His name is Rupert. He lives in Melbourne. And the bike being sold that day, it had once belonged to him. It looks like a Land Rover. It's boxy, it's solid, it's all black. I picked it because it's really reliable. It's not sleek. No one wearing Lycra has ever ridden this bike kind of bike. Rupert is a cycling nut. And I haven't actually taken a tram or a train in three years, maybe. Once you've, like, transported yourself around the city by a bike and then you try getting on a tram and it's like, I could be on a bike right now. I could be cruising. A few years ago, after all this riding, Rupert decides it's time to kick it up a notch. He decides it's time to buy a fancier bike. He researches and he deliberates for months before landing on that boxy black Land Rover of a thing. It's called a Surly Straggler. He shells out $2,500, more than double what he'd ever paid for a bike. But once he's in the saddle, it just leaves his other bike for dead. You don't want to sound like a wanker, but, like, the efficiency of a good bike versus a crappy bike. You're using half the energy to get to work in the morning. As he rides along, the gears shift without complaint. The front rack holds his bag perfectly, so he never gets a sweaty back. It's a joy to ride. And then, about six months after he bought it, Rupert rides the straggler into work one day. And I was running impressively late. I'd got out of bed at sort of 8.45 or something insane. And I don't think I even had a shower that day, and I just got on the bike rode it into our underground lockup, and I just put it into the rack, grabbed my bag and went upstairs. The day goes on like any other in the office. Lunch comes and goes. I'm just tapping away at the keyboard and I heard someone come to the front desk to talk to the receptionist and it was the architect from downstairs that had come up to say he'd seen someone suspiciously wheeling a bike out the fire escape and down the road. And I was like, oh, God. I had an instant sort of feeling in my gut that it's probably my bike because mine was the most expensive. And if I was a guy looking for a bike, I would have stolen mine and it was unlocked. And then the moment I saw it was gone, ran out the front of the building. I spent half an hour straight away, like, walking the streets. Didn't see him, couldn't find him. No sign of him. The Surly Straggler was gone. 
ripped away by some heartless thief. The honeymoon period brought to an abrupt end. Rupert does all the things you're supposed to do when your bike gets stolen. He reports it to police and pretty much gets the response he was expecting. Thanks for reporting it. We'll let you know what happens. It's unlikely that you will see this bike again. He checks into the cash converters in the local area. Nothing. The bike shop where he bought it, they're kind and they wish him luck, but... I mean, what could they do, really? They're not bike police. In a final attempt to get the word out, Rupert posts about the theft on Facebook. There are sympathy comments, a few friends promise to keep an eye out for it. And then... And it was on that Facebook post that a friend of mine said, oh, you should put it up on Bike Vault. And I was like, what is that? Bike Vault, in its simplest form, is a website. And that's where Rupert finds himself next. And it appeared to be a database of bikes where you could report a bike stolen and if other people saw it, they could use that website as a sort of central repository to connect the owner to the bike. As Rupert scrolls through, there are bikes of all stripes. Carbon fibre frames, mountain bikes, vintage steel bikes, all posted here by their loving owners seeking a reunion, asking the cycling community to please keep an eye out. So Rupert creates a profile for the surly straggler, adds a photo, details of the bike and the theft, and he signs up for a daily email that will alert him to similar bikes being sold online in case it should turn up there. I think it was the following business day, so it would have been Monday, that I got a call from Brad. G'day, I'm Brad from Bike Fault. I just thought, what's this guy up to? What's he want? I treat it as a crime scene, um, so I hands-on would contact each victim and, and have a chat with them and discuss through what they could do to better their odds of recovery and, and again, locking down that evidence. This is Brad Kellis, Bike Vault's founder. And although he's an ex-cop, Brad has held on to the neat haircut and the straight-shooting demeanour. It's like notes. It corroborates then what the uh, person has recorded that time. So in a year or six months, whatever it may be, we can at least verify that data. You know, he's obviously very obsessed with how prevalent bike theft is in Australia. He basically said, the more detail you put up, the more likely you are to get your bike back. And that he organises getting it back with the police. Brad had been in the force for more than 20 years, working as a detective mostly. His specialties had included kidnapping, blackmail and extortion. he left the force some years before this call with Rupert, but he continued to bring a dogged intensity to everything he did. After leaving the police, he decides to start competing in Ironman events. And that's how he first gets deep into cycling, alongside running and swimming. And then, while training at a local pool, he has a stroke. You know, it was near-death experience for me at the time, and the reason for that was that 10 minutes before the stroke occurred, I was actually in a, in a 50-metre pool on my own training, and uh, if it had happened in the pool, I would have drowned. Um, so I look, Oh, Brad. <laughs> yeah, it, was, uh, it gives me a shiver now thinking about it six years on. It's probably one of, you know, you've got to go through the process, but I think it was one of the best things that changed my direction in life, which, um, you know, for the good. So I, I decided I'd want to look at something from a charitable perspective. One of the first fundraising efforts that Brad takes on during his recovery is a charity bike ride. To drum up support, he overcomes his aversion to social media and he joins the local cycling Facebook group. On there, he starts to notice this uptick, an 
appetite among cyclists to try to recover their stolen bikes by reaching out to the community. And while he's off from work recovering from a stroke, he has a lot of time to think. And he starts piecing together what he knows. More than 20,000 bikes are stolen a year in this country. The police are really busy. A high-volume crime like bike theft? They can't keep up with that. And it all comes together. With the cycling community active on Facebook, plus his detective skills, Brad figures, why couldn't he start helping people track down their stolen bikes? And so he gets to work, sleuthing nights and weekends, working by lamplight from his home office, unpaid. Bike Vault is born. No badge, no gun, just one lone ex-cop and his laptop against the bike thieves. I see us as your online guardians against theft. But some people might just say, listen, Brad, it's a push bike. Yeah. Oh, I get that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and what do you say and then what do you think? I, I don't care. It's, uh, it's, it's someone's and, and they obviously love it and, and care about it. Bikes now are growing in value. So, you know, I was in a bike shop recently and I saw a bike on the floor that was worth $19,000. Small car kind of prices. Absolutely. So the fact that bikes are made up of multi-components, they're they're easy to steal, wheel it out or ride it out and, and you're on your way. So we need to make it known to the thieves that it's no longer an easy target by basically using the same methodology that helped reduce car theft in Australia, uh, it will have the same impact on bikes. But it is a constantly moving target. The criminals know the game and uh, they definitely have the advantage by being able to uh, disguise and, you know, not provide information and and social media and these online applications have made it easier for them. Mm. But at the end of the day, if we can just reduce the black market trade, we're going to see a a large percentage drop. So it is kind of cat and mouse, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. The first step of a successful recovery hinges on identification, figuring out how to prove that something is yours after it's been stolen. The next step is to locate it. And then once you've tracked it down, that's when you notify police. So far, Rupert's completed step one. Now, Brad says, keep checking the sales listings every morning because there is a pattern. Most people stop looking for their stolen bike after about a month. And most bike thieves know that. On that call, Brad tells Rupert, whatever you do, don't give up. Admittedly, it's not probable that you'll get this bike back, but it is possible. And I told him how, like, the the email thing seems good and, like, I'll keep an eye on that. But I didn't expect him to be doing anything crazy. Like, who's got time for that? Every morning, Rupert sits down at his desk sips his coffee and makes his way through the listings. Four weeks of checking turns into four months, then a year. They did get kind of depressing because every time I looked at them, I briefly remembered losing the bike. I'm like, oh, better check the email again. A year stretches to 18 months, and it's then, a year and a half after the straggler's been stolen, that he finally reaches a crossroads. Like, I don't think I'm ever getting this back. So I was researching buying a new bike, you know. I'm getting back in the scene. And this is the bit that sounds unbelievable, as if I've fabricated it for the purpose of making this story more interesting than it is. But I'd put aside some money to buy another bike. I had the phone in my hand and I'd just been Googling surly stragglers in Brunswick and I was calling 
a Brunswick bike store when the phone rang and it was Brad from Bike Vault and he called to say, guess what, I see your bike online for sale. What happened in Rupert's case is uh, we got a tip off. We've built a bit of a, a following of uh, people I call stolen bike spotters. They're people that take pleasure out of searching online for stolen bikes. Uh, with Rupert's, we say, look, we've got a lead on your bike. We need you to, to do this, and that is revisit your unique identifiers so we can immediately spot some things that may not have been obvious to the victim that may be unique to the bike. In non-police speak, unique identifiers basically means anything that makes this surly straggler different to the thousands that are out there. Unusual handlebar tape, the length of a valve stem on a tyre, a custom component, maybe an unusual dent or scratch in the paintwork. These are the things that Brad looks out for. And he basically said, do you have a more recent photo because I need to be able to prove that this is your bike? But he basically told me to go away and look for a more recent photo because it was critical to getting the bike. So Rupert and his girlfriend Jess get to work. Two little laptops on the floor in the lounge room and I'm like scrolling and Jess is calling and it's, you know, like a little operation centre because I had the photos from when it was brand new but when it was brand new it just looked like any bike that you could get out of a catalogue and I'd made some changes. I'd put on a bunch of special little bits and bobs onto the bike that would make it distinguishing. Rupert calls friends that he's been on rides with. Do they have any photos? No. His family? Nope. And there's pressure. Time is now of the essence. This bike is advertised for sale, well under market value. It's not going to last. Um, and I was getting, like, frustrated. because I'm like, we're so close. This is an insane circumstance where I could potentially get this bike back. And we're limited by the fact that I haven't taken a photo of my bike. What a stupid wall to hit. And then, after six unbroken hours of searching and scrolling, a breakthrough. And then Jess, who has, like, a much better eye for detail than I do, she found this photo of her at the front of our garage. And in the background, like, it's dark, and you kind of almost need to turn the, the brightness up on the photo to see it. I was like, enhance, 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 <laughs> <Exactly>. CSI. <laughs> this photo's taken maybe a week before it got stolen. But you can see my bike in the background against the wall, and on my bike are these two bottle cages. Oh, you mean like a water bottle holder? Yeah, yeah, a grey one and a white one. And these two bottle cages are presents that Jess's dad had brought over from Texas, and they're completely unique bottle cages. Like, I don't think you can buy them in Melbourne, and no human being in Australia has this combination of two bottle cages on their bike. So the moment I saw that, I knew we were on. Right away, Rupert gets Brad on the phone. He's like, perfect. A recent photo, that's all we need. Send it to me straight away. And he said, leave it with me. And then it's a few days and I notice that the ad gets taken offline. So it's no longer on Gumtree. And I get in contact with Brad and he's like, sorry, it's gone. They've missed it. The Gumtree ad, it's now a dead link. The seller's profile, no longer traceable. The bike seems to have just disappeared as quickly as it had surfaced. I felt worse 
after it disappeared than I did when it got stolen initially. I don't know, like, it, I, it had bothered me for a year and a half and I'd sort of come to terms with it and then it got dangled in front of me. I was like, oh. And how did you feel, Brad, when you realised that? <laughs> gutted, gutted for Rupert. The same thing was instilled into him that, you know, the clock started again. The bike was sold cheap. There's a good chance that they will be resold. So re-enthused Rupert to keep looking. He said, keep an eye online, keep an eye on the emails, like it may come back again. And lo and behold, Brad was right. Rupert didn't have to wait too long before he spotted the bike again. A month later, it turned up online again. And this time it was in the email that I got in the morning. So I was scrolling through and I was like, it's a black surly straggler. And I knew it instantaneously that it was mine, even though some features had changed and it had been, like, cleaned quite well. But, but it had still... the bottle cages still ah. sitting there, like, in the middle. No one had bothered to get their Allen key out and unscrew the bottle cages. I was stoked because I was like, this time I'm getting this bike back. In Rupert's case, he made his own luck by his searching. And what do you think when you see that? Uh, happy days, really. Um, so Fire in your belly? <laughs> yeah, sure. I got onto him the following day and he was like, yep, that's your bike, leave it with me. And he was so confident and so determined, like, I'm going to let him handle it. We went on the front foot this time. In this instance, I uh, contacted some police colleagues in Victoria. I contacted the person that was selling the bike uh, as a potential purchaser. The gentleman uh, portrayed that he was uh, worked uh, in an office building in Box Hill and that I could arrange for a, an inspection time around midday. The timing was I was on the phone to uh, the gentleman. I, on the other hand, had another phone going with the police who were coming out from their station to meet at the said location, which was uh, a little side street. Um, I recall the gentleman was in the lift asking what car I was in and I was sort of making that up on the on the fly because, of course, I'm not there. Uh, Corolla. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, typically something very plain and boring. Yeah. Um, and where, where are you? And, then, you know, of course, you're trying to picture the location. Usually I would have done, you know, a Google search anyway and understand the layout mm-hmm. and that um, I'm just around the corner. And then, you know, he's standing there with a, a bike, so he's going to be very easy to spot. So Damo, I think it was, a detective, uh, he, he turned up and uh, and they met and obviously at that point then the police would have declared who they were and, and taken over from there. He gave over the bike very quickly, so there was no issue there, but he's obviously very surprised. You know, I can't say anything to say whether or not he was... Uh, a villain in his own right. So I was just waiting at home and eventually I get a phone call and he says, guess what? I've got your bike. (laughs) It's at the Box Hill Police Station and you can arrange to pick it up. I could feel his chuffedness over the phone. He was loving it as much as you were. Easily, yeah. Were you thrilled? Oh, absolutely. No, I love these... They they make my day. Um, so many recoveries, 
you know, it, it just, it's why, why it will always exist or why I love it. I was ecstatic and kind of in an unbelieving state as well. Like, like I, I believed that he had got it, but I couldn't make that real in my mind until I had my hands clutching it. So Jess drove me down and then after a few minutes coming down the stairs is this cop physically carrying my bike down the stairs. And I was like, hell yeah, this is my bike straight away. No pedals. The pedals had been stripped somewhere in its whole adventure. Did you ever wonder, like, what have you seen, little bike, in the yeah, years? Yeah, where then? have you been? How many hands did it go through? Like, And I sort of stared at it in disbelief for a while and then stuffed it into the car and we drove home. Um, it's still my work at commuter bike as well as the sort of weekend trip away bike. We've done a lovely ride out past Bonnie Doon. Um, trips where you put your tent and your food and your sleeping gear on the bike and then you ride out and then you pack it all up, all back onto the bike and then ride home again. So lovely. When you see that there might be some puzzle piece, some morsel of the evidence that you might be able to contribute. It sounds like you always feel compelled to do that. Yeah, I'm, I'm all in <laughs> and, uh, and it's just been my makeup, I guess, um, which keeps me up late and I can, yeah, I don't like a half a job, especially with this sort of thing, you know, because it'll fail then. Uh, so I'd rather see uh, that it's all done properly and I never ever let a case go in my career. Yeah, not on my watch. So it certainly makes me smile most days of the week, especially when we get a recovery. You know, I've made friends with so many victims, you know, and I've never found a victim I haven't liked. I really haven't. And, um, you know, when I can help a victim, I certainly will uh, go out of my way to help them if, if I think we can get somewhere with it, sure. I, you know, I never see myself uh, getting a return on the money that I've invested. I, it'll, I guess it'll go on my tombstone when I... Pass away. <laughs> That's my legacy. Uh, founder and, and ongoing patron. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Brad is committed to Bike Vault remaining a free service. If your bike's been stolen and you want help trying to recover it, you can head to their website at bikevault.com.au. Thanks to Rupert Dance and Brad Kellis for sharing their bike odyssey. We hope you're enjoying days like these. If you would like to support us, please subscribe and leave us a rating on your podcast app of choice, or you can share the word on Twitter or Facebook. If there's a story that you want days like these to hear, please share it with us. You can record a voice memo or write us a note. Our email is dayslikethese at abc.net.au. On the next episode of Days Like These, a woman of incredible determination and creativity chases her dream to be a scientist from primary school to the highest levels of academia. And I remember having to tell my teachers I'm dyslexic and there was this old nun and she goes to me, what are you? And I go, sister, I'm dyslexic. And she goes, dyslexia? Have they not found a cure for that yet? And I was like, sister, it's not the common cold. Days Like These is hosted by me, Elizabeth Coolass. Our lead reporter is Pat Abud. Our season two reporting team includes Sam Wicks, James Viver and Belinda Lopez. Our researcher is Tamar Cranswick. 
Our digital team includes Andrew Davies and Michael Delaney. Sound design on this episode by Russell Stapleton, with thanks to Timothy Nicastri and Stephen Tilley. The supervising producer for this episode was Tom Wright, and our brilliant executive producers are Ian Walker and Rachel Fountain. Our theme song is Yeah Nah by The Gooch Palms, courtesy of Ratbag Records and BMG. Extra music by Russell Stapleton. See you next time. I'm hoping at this point that we can count you as a proper fan of days like these. And that'd make you a fan of good stories, right? So here's a recommendation for a history podcast that's a bit of a hidden gem. It's called Little Tiny, and the premise is something akin to the butterfly effect. It's all about the little things that have made a really big difference in the world. Whether it's the key that sank the Titanic, the coin that led to Marie Antoinette's beheading, or the cup of tea that saved the Industrial Revolution. It's all about the little guy. Here's host Kara Schlegel with a taste test from, spoiler alert, an episode called The Key. What I will say is that there are many theories about the factors that led to the untimely deaths of the passengers and crew. From the ship steering off course, travelling at a higher speed than any rational person would allow, who doesn't have a small penis and something to prove, to the lack of lifeboats and the mystery surrounding the passing ships who didn't come to their rescue. But the answer could be very simple. On the night of April 14th, 1912, five days into the Titanic's maiden voyage, Two lookouts sat perched atop the ship's crow's nest, instructed to scout for any floating ice. They squinted through the night and the fog, squinted because, despite being lookouts, they were never assigned binoculars. I know what you're thinking. How can a lookout look out without binoculars? And that's what Frederick Fleet thought the lookout who spotted the iceberg and was immortalised in James Cameron's classic with the line, Iceberg! Right ahead! Ah, powerful stuff. The man in charge of handing out the binoculars was none other than Tingle Wilde, who had been rushed into his position and was maybe a little in over his head and unable to handle such of a seemingly minor, if not ultimately incredibly important task. Or could it be that he was missing a small key? A key that opened a locker which contained the binoculars to be assigned to the stationed lookouts. A key that resided in the pocket of one Mr David Blair as he was swiftly escorted off the RMS Titanic a few days earlier on April 9th, 1912.